So on this day when we uh, want to honor this whole weekend, really, to honor those who paid the ultimate price to secure our freedom, we're going to shift gears and talk about the honor of our God in worship. What does that look like? We're in a very difficult and controversial passage. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's turn over there in our Bibles. Honor in worship is the title. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As we've been doing, why don't we uh, read the whole text together? And if you're physically able, let's stand to our feet as we read the word of God. 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to pick it up in verse 2. Now I praise you because you remember me, says Paul to the Corinthian church, in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that, the, that Christ is the head of every man, 11.3. The man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her, let her cover her head. Seven. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray uh, to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice nor have the churches of God. And all God's people said, are you sure you want to say it? <laughs> all right. You may have a seat. Uh, some of you didn't want to say amen. You wanted to say, huh? <laughs> well, this is one of those huh passages because much of the content goes back to 2,000 years to first century Corinth in a Greco-Roman society and is, has a cultural bent to it. And so because it's a cultural situation with uh, biblical principles at the foundation, it's going to take a little bit of work for us to understand what Paul is saying and what he is not saying. So I think it's important for you to know that what Paul is addressing is early worship in the early Christian church. This is actually a glimpse into what it looked like in early church services. And something was happening in the Corinthian congregation that was bringing dishonor. It was out of order. It was not what God wanted. And so Paul was inspired to write to the church about proper order in worship. You and I may not think of this much in the West, but God does have specific things that he wants to see when we worship. In fact, in verse 10 of this text, we, are, uh, we have a mention of the angels because of the angels. 
And you may not think of this often, but the angels even seem to have a role in the corporate worship of the church. The angels that spend time in the presence of God and never cease to say day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So God is holy. And even though we are saved by grace and we are kept by grace, there is a certain expectation, there's a certain order that God uh, desires for his people to please him in worship. And when we gather here, that's essentially our main goal is to honor the Lord. And so Paul, in verse 4, we laid the foundation of this last week with talking about heavenly roles. He begins with the man. He says, every man, 11.4, who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces or dishonors his head. But every woman, you have the man in verse 4, the woman in verse 5. Remember, we said you could translate these words husband and wife as well. But every woman or wife who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. Now, the word disgrace there, if you have a New American Standard Bible or dishonor, is, the, is a Greek word which means to shame down. It literally means to put to the blush. It means something that would cause disgrace and dishonor or shame. What is that? Well, in verse 4, the man is addressed. And the man, it says, every man who has something on his head while praying and prophesying. Would you know, notice that in verses 4 and 5, both the man and the woman are praying or prophesying, or both, in the context of an early church service. What does that mean? Well, prayer, and this word for prayer can mean intercession, but it also means worship. So you could think of an early church service where people, as we just did, are perhaps worshiping God in song. Or when we all prayed for Cameron just a moment ago, we, some of you put out your hand and corporately we sought the Lord in prayer for one of the body members. Prophesying has the idea in chapter 12 and more in 14 of clear proclamation of truth to edify, exhort, and console. We'll talk more about that when we get into spiritual gifts. So certainly male and female are participants in early church worship services. We have other scriptures that bring a little bit more balance and clarity to the roles there. But what we do know is that they are co-participants and they're doing the same thing. They're both praying, husband and wife, male and female, and they are prophesying or speaking truth into one another's lives. The word dishonor, if you have an ESV, New King James, NIV, the dishonoring of one's head is a major theme. It's the big idea of verses 4 through 6. The man in verse 4, the husband, if you will, is addressed, and he is first addressed in verse 3 as headship is laid out, and the woman or the wife is addressed in the following verse in verse 5. Together they pray, together they prophesy. The primary location of the text is an early church gathering. Now remember that church buildings were not established until a couple centuries later, so the early church met in homes. And that may have, uh, you know, been a reason why some of these things could happen. Maybe a more casual atmosphere could lend itself to some questionable behaviors and things that might need to be addressed. 
And so we are taken into a home. You might imagine a large, small group Bible study. Maybe you've been part of one in a home. That would be this context. Maybe uh, someone grabs the guitar and worship begins to go forth. Maybe people begin to quote scripture and speak encouragement and exhortation and consolation into one another's lives. That's what's going on, an early church worship service. And I think it's safe to envision this in this text, and you might want to just, uh, if you're taking notes, go ahead and write that down. One writer says, obviously, there is a significant, significant cultural distance between us and the Corinthian church. Some things that were common to them seem strange to us. Of course, much of what is common to us would be incomprehensible to them. But there is a significant overlap between us as well particularly at the level of principle. Though the application of biblical principles can take various forms in different cultures, the principles stand, close quote. Obviously, men and women are engaged in worship, but something was happening to dishonor one's head. The man whose head is Christ, Christ was being dishonored or potentially dishonored, if this is a real situation, and the husband was being dishonored by actions of the wife or the woman. And so we need to see this in terms of paying attention to one another, in terms of the context of worship, husband and wife. This is a controversial text, as I mentioned, but we need to have understanding Some of the cultural understanding will become clear as we go through it, and I hope to bring clarity where there may be some confusion. Let me give you an example of a cultural uh, action that the principle still exists, but the application or the living out of it might be different. Take, for example, Jesus washes the disciples' feet in John 13, the night before he dies. He says, Do you see what I've done to you? I'm paraphrasing. You ought to do the same. If I washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet, for I've given you an example that you should do as I did. You call me Master and Lord, and you're right, that's what I am. If I washed your feet, your Master and Lord, you ought to wash one another's feet. Now, modern Christians might say, does that mean that we are to be engaged in foot-washing ceremonies? I don't think so. I hope not frankly. (laughs) But in the first century, they wore open-toed sandals. There were dirt roads. And the lowest slave would often wash the feet of the person who came into the home and kind of take care of their needs in that way. What's a modern example? Maybe someone comes over for dinner and we offer to take their coat. Uh, Maybe a modern example is that your pastor's car is really dirty and you offer to wash and wax it at no additional charge. All right? You know, you guys could think of many different ways that you could apply this, right? You know, we have people who shine shoes today. We all wear uh, typically regular shoes. Could that be an application? I don't know. It, It doesn't necessarily mean that we have to worry too much about what that might look like, but we need to understand the spirit of what Jesus said. What was Jesus doing in washing the disciples' feet? They were arguing about which one of them was the greatest, Jesus said, I am the greatest one, and I humbled myself before you, and I'm going to pay the ultimate humility in dying in the shame and agony of the cross, and you guys can't stop fighting about which one of you is the greatest. And so he took a radical example in the culture of that day to make the uh, application or the biblical principle point. Everybody with me? 
And so we need wisdom in a few cases where there is a cultural situation, but the spirit of the text or the biblical principle needs to be really what we pay attention to. Paul has laid out headship, heavenly roles in the first in verses two and three. He's talking about headship. We talked about the Greek word is kephale. If you're interested, the Hebrew word for head is rosh. It comes from the Hebrew letter, the 20th letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Resh. And we have a holiday in Judaism called Rosh Hashanah. And Rosh Hashanah is the head of the year. And so it's interesting that in the Hebrew picture language, when Moses would have drew the Resh, it looks like a man's head. And so headship permeates the Bible from the beginning to the end, all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, Jesus is the head of the church, and we have these principles laid out in marriage and in the church. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians and turn to Colossians a little bit to your right. I want to show you something as it connects to marriage and worship and the uh, spirit filling us and the word of God richly dwelling in us. This is Colossians 3. Ephesians 5 is the parallel passage where it says, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. It talks about, uh, we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We make melody in our heart as to the Lord. And then it goes into a teaching about marriage. Now I want you to follow this and see the same principles in Colossians 3.15. What is the role of worship in a healthy marriage? It says, let the peace, Colossians 3.15, of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be, fa- be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We would venture to say that probably is a worship service, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Here's marriage. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting. The Greek word for fitting means proper, appropriate in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. The word fitting in verse 15, as is appropriate or fitting, has the meaning of to come up to, to reach out for, to attain to. Our lives, our marriages, our worship, for those of you who are married, have goals to which we seek to attain. And I would submit to you, you may not have thought of this before, but here's the thought, is that your worship, the quality of your worship, the depth of your worship, will spill over into the quality of your marriage and the depth of your relationship with your spouse. Notice how in Colossians 3.15, it says, it talks about the peace of Christ ruling, the word of God richly dwelling, and then it goes into this idea of teaching and admonishing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and it talks about doing what we do to please the Lord, and then right into the home, from worship into the home, from early worship right into the family. And maybe, just maybe, many marriages are in trouble today because the worship is lacking. The commitment to God, the vertical aspect of one's life is waning and it is going to have reverberations into the horizontal. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 11. I think that's part of what was happening here. The Corinthians, at least some of them, were missing the mark 
in terms of their worship. They were not praising the Lord the way that God would want. The word in Hebrew for praise is hallel. It's the first part of when we say hallelujah, we are saying praise the Lord. In the Hebrew picture language, praise means the tongue of tongues, says Dr. Seekins. It means to praise, to boast, to glory, to rave. Worship, then, is about honor. It is about giving honor where honor is definitely due, and how we worship God does matter. One more place I want you to turn, which is Psalm 29. Just hold your place in 1 Corinthians 11. Turn to Psalm 29. David, who wrote the bulk of the Psalms, is talking about worship here, Psalm 29, and he is breaking into praise to God. Psalm 29, begin at verse 1. David writes, Psalm 29, 1, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, 29, 1, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord, Psalm 29, 2, The glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. If you have other translations, it says, In the splendor or beauty of holiness. Psalm 29.3, the voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The glory, the God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. See, God is holy. And when we come into a worship service, we are to treat him as holy. Now, what does that look like? How do we ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name? How do we worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness? I would submit to you that whatever this means, it's going to reverberate back into your life. Go back to 1 Corinthians 11. Here's what I mean. When we do things God's way, there's a beauty before the Lord. He's honored. He's pleased. He's seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. But I I would submit to you that it bounces back to us. The beauty comes back to us when we live life God's way in God's order. Have you noticed? We are in a world of utter chaos. People are so confused about their purpose, who they are, what their life's about, even their very nature or being. People are uh, as confused as I've ever seen. And the church needs to bring clarity with compassion into this broken world. Because we were all there, right? We are all once there. All in the futility of our minds, we may have been confused about life. The man being addressed because the man is the head is addressed first, as we see in uh, the earlier section. And he says, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Bible students, who's the head of the man? Look at verse 3. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man or the head of every husband. So if this man has something on his head while praying or prophesying in early worship service, He disgraces his head. Who does he disgrace or dishonor? Christ. He's not worshiping the Lord in the beauty of holiness. What is going on, Pastor Michael? Let me show you a picture. There's a statue that um, has, you can see this online. It's the statue from Corinth of the veiled Augustus Caesar. Now, what he is wearing is what we know as a toga. And this uh, toga is pulled over his head in preparation to offer, and I'm quoting, a libation 
This may be a, an important clue to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 4. The statue, says this writer, was a propaganda piece intended to present the emperor as a pious Roman. Wearing the toga over the head at pagan sacrifices was a familiar practice. As Oster makes the case, he says, Roman pietistic and devotional ethos pervaded at Corinth. Remember, Corinth was really a, a Roman colony. Oster claims the practice of men covering their heads in a context of prayer and prophecy was a common pattern of Roman piety and widespread during the late Republic and early Empire. Since Corinth was a Roman colony, there should be little uh, doubt, little don't doubt this aspect of Roman religious practice and that it deserves greater attention by commentators than it's received. Here's the bottom line. It may be that men who came out of paganism into Christianity and were used to this kind of setting and garb may have worn the toga and pulled it over their head in preparation to pray and prophesy in an early Christian worship service. But the implication of the headdress was connected to what? To paganism and the occult. And so I believe that there's a good case to be made that what Paul is addressing is something cultural that the principle spills over to today, but I don't think it has much to do with a baseball cap. I don't think it has much to do with a hat in church. I think it's the implications of what was happening. If you had converted over from pagan religion, and uh, we've been dealing with the last several chapters with um, idolatry and spiritual adultery in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And if you were a Christian and you, you did this in the Christian service, it would send the wrong message and it could disgrace your head because it was connected to paganism. Everybody with me? And so I think that this is what's probably going on here. It brought shame and dishonor to one's head. Now, we have to understand that wearing a hat or a head covering is not the issue. In fact, in, in Exodus 28, verses 36 through 40, Moses is given instruction for the priestly garments, which includes what? A turban on the head. In fact, the high priest wears a turban on his head as he ministers to the Lord on behalf of the people. And on that turban, it says holiness to the Lord. If wearing a head covering was the essential issue, pray tell, why is Moses being instructed to make priestly garments with a head covering or a turban? I don't think the head covering in and of itself is the issue at all. I think there's something much deeper going on, and I think it has to do with the, the pagan implications of the toga pulled over the head. What example might we use in a modern context? Well, maybe if someone, for example, was in a home where there was a Ouija board, or imagine that you were in a Christian worship service and you were wearing a T-shirt with a great big pagan symbol on it, uh, 666 is my favorite number, <laughs> Or maybe you had something like a pentagram on a t-shirt and you're in an early or you're in a modern worship service. That would be sending the wrong message. It could dishonor your head, Christ, for what it means to the pagans and in the pagan world. And I think that this is what's going on. The action of pulling the toga, toga over the head had clear associations to pagan devotion to pagan deities. And by virtue of that, it dishonored one's head, Christ. In the next section, 
uh, 17 through 34 of chapter 11, the Corinthians were abusing wine at the early potlucks or love feasts. They were getting drunk. Drunkenness was part of early cultic pagan celebrations. Like to Dionysius and other pagan gods, people would abuse alcohol, they would get intoxicated or drunk, and they would say that would put them better in touch with the gods. And in the next section, the Corinthians are getting drunk at Christian agape feasts or potlucks. And Paul says, don't do that. That is not what you should be doing. You see, they were carrying some of their religious practices, what they had come out of, into their Christian uh, experience. Now, while we understand the gravity of this, we also have to understand that a lot of people just didn't maybe make the connection. Uh, when we're brand new to the Christian faith, we don't understand a lot of levels of what we do or what we carry into the Christian life. And so this is where we need to grow. So some argue that this is a hypothetical and not an actual practice of the Corinthian men as Paul addresses the women next. Uh, one writer says, instead he argues from how shameful it would be for a man to pray or prophesy in Christian worship in this way, arrayed in a pagan devotional uh, 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 toga kind of thing, but it may have been hypothetical, it may not have been. Notice the man is in verse 4, and then the woman. But every woman who has her head uncovered, the issue with the man was the covering, now it's uncovered, while praying or prophesying, she's also involved in the early worship service. When she has her head uncovered, disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head six, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Now, what in the world is going on with this one? <laughs> well, first we should affirm that Paul is acknowledging that women have an active role in the early services of the church. One writer says this was in contrast to Jewish synagogue worship where women were not considered full members, were required to sit behind a veil. In the Christian church, and I think because of Jesus, women were to be full congregational participants. This affirms the emphasis put on equality and interdependence of the sexes, though not without the teaching on roles. Order does not mean inequality, as we see in verse 3. Christ has God the Father as his head, but there is a willing submission to his role within the triune nature of God. There's a beauty in doing what is right, what is appropriate, what is good. Here's the big question in verses 5 and 6. What was a woman in this culture to wear on her head and why? Secondly, how does this information in verse 6 about a woman's hair being cut off or her head shaved relate to this? I have no idea, so let's move on. No, I'm just kidding. I think I have an idea. Let me just say here that the issue is not hairstyle. There's a view, it's called the bun view. You all ready for that? The bun view, where the woman in the early church service had to have her hair up in a bun because maybe by throwing her hair around, it sent the wrong message. I do not think that that's the primary issue here. The issue is head coverings, how they were viewed in this culture. For a Hebrew woman to go out uncovered was a disgrace, according to 3 Maccabees chapter 4. Because a covered head, please hear this, was a sign of modesty. 
To go out with loose hair in public was a greater disgrace and considered grounds for divorce. The Corinthian culture also looked askance, says one writer, at women, uh, women who were going out in public without a head covering. The literature of the time suggests that it was a token, I'm sorry, it was taken for granted that respectable women would wear some kind of head covering in public. Now, we may not get this, but that is irrelevant. This is what was happening in the culture of the day. Let's go to the next photo. And so what you had is you had women who would typically dress in this way, and we can see this in sculptures of the time, with some sort of head covering. And it would appear that women who went out without the head covering on were saying, I'm available. They were saying to a guy, and even potentially maybe connected to prostitution and temple prostitution, that I want, I'm signaling the men that I'm available. Now imagine, to take it into an early church service, if the primary issue of the head covering is modesty of that time, take it into the culture today and begin to ask questions about the modern church and modesty. And I think you see the spirit behind the cultural teaching. What's the principle? That in Christian worship, if a woman is not modest, she dishonors her head. Who's her head? Her husband. So imagine that uh, you're in a church service. There's someone who is scantily dressed, immodest, let's say. And we've probably maybe experienced this before. And all of a sudden, that person is a distraction to the worship that should be directed at God, but also potentially dishonoring their spouse or their head. Everybody with me? The issue is not so much the head covering. We could just put that aside. It's the principle behind it, and the principle is modesty. Now, how do you think we are doing as a culture in the area of modesty? Walk through the grocery store line, and you have to go like this to try not to look at all the skin that is put on open display for all to see. It is everywhere. And it often does come into the church because, let's face it, we open the doors, and the, all people are welcome to come here, and we have some non-Christians that come here. We have people who are, you know, three months, six months of one year in the Lord, and we have people who have been walking with the Lord for 50 or 60 years. We have all these different levels, so that's why we need grace. Now, I would have a different discussion with someone about modesty who's been walking with the Lord for 20 years as opposed to someone who's been walking with the Lord for two months. Amen? This is where we need to understand God's grace. This is where we need to have wisdom in how we deal with people, how we approach one another. We're all growing. But we also need to understand that we don't want to be a distraction. Uh, Tacitus, according to uh, Tacitus, he says, the husband of the adulterous wife cuts her hair, strips her, and banishes her from the house. This is in Germania 19. The shame attached to the shorn head of a woman runs deeper than uh, she might appear mannish, says this writer. The shaved head is imposed upon the adulteress to expose her publicly according to winter. Paul is using hyperbole to make a point that if a woman appears uncovered, 
It's as shameful as being shorn or shaven as though she had committed adultery. Since that is the case, she needs to be covered. The word for covered does not refer to a hairstyle, says garland. In classical Greek, it means to cover up, cover up and could also mean the veil, close quote. Uncovering the head in public had sexual implications. For Philo, the covering conveys that a woman is innocent, virtuous, and untouchable. It was a nonverbal way of saying, I'm available if you didn't wear the head covering. Some women were eschewing the common cultural practice of wearing covering in worship. In the freedom of worship, perhaps because it was in a home, they allowed their hair to hang down on their shoulders. This implied that they were available, and it was the wrong message being sent. This may be a little bit heavy, but this is what one writer says. This may be difficult for a modern Western culture to grasp, but this was seen as a sexual statement and incitement. Public worship was neither the occasion for women to be objects of attraction or to be sized up by men, nor an occasion for women to offer cryptic suggestions to men. Women are not to be ogled at or scrutinized or eyed as sex objects during worship, says one writer. Paul's primary interest in this passage is to prevent this from happening. And he thus argues that a woman should be covered. You can see why a cultural understanding of the day leads us to the larger principle of today. Amen? And it's this, that a man should not have, as he worships the Lord, any associations with paganism, and a woman, as she worships the Lord, should be modest on behalf of her husband, saying, I am taken, I belong only to him. Some years ago, I heard the wife of Albert Polhos, the well-known Angels, Angels baseball player, uh, interviewed on Focus on the Family, and she was talking about the issue of modesty. And she said she was at the ballpark, she was sitting in the stands, and some young teenage girls came walking by scantily dressed. She said she looked around and watched man after man staring at them and ogling at them, etc., etc. She then introduced herself to these young girls, and she said to them, have you seen the way the men around you have been looking at you? She said, you're beautiful. God made you beautiful, but you don't have to show your body or so much as you live your life. You have value without that. And the girl said, well, who do you think you are, Missy? And she said, I happen to be the wife of Albert Pulhos, who's playing first base down there on the field. The girls were a little shocked and taken aback. And what she said was, look, I'm trying to convince young women that you don't have to go with the masses to have value in your life. There's a beauty in what is appropriate and what is right and good and true. And we've lost that, let's, let's face it, in our society and parents, I want to say to you that you have some responsibility here. You have to have those conversation with, conversations with your kids and grandkids. You have to have those conversations with your spouse, perhaps, to understand the issues that are before us. For a man ought not to have his head covered, seven. You'll notice there's a great uh, a bit of balance addressing men and women in the passage. A man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. It doesn't say that she's not made in the image of God, but it says that she's the glory of man. 
That is, she is someone who can be his glory. He celebrates her. She's a gift from God to him. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. All the way back to Genesis 2, we studied it last week. She was taken from his side, from next to his heart. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake or for the woman, but woman for the man's sake. Now, Paul is not making what I would say is an ontological argument by essence or nature or value. That's not what he's saying. But he's going back to Genesis chapter 2, and he's using this as an illustration back to the idea of headship. He returns to Genesis 1.27, to the wonder of male and female being made in the image of God and Eve coming out of Adam's side and being his glory. And when she's brought to him, he says, whoa, man, she's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You might add glory, glory, glory. So there's not a negative here. Paul is going back to the order of headship in verses 2 and 3. And that order is connected to the creation order. And we know that Eve was taken out of man. She was created to be his helper, to be his ally. And he is to love her as his head, as he is the head of her. He is to protect her. He is to love her as Christ loved the church. Paul is not saying anything new. He is not denying that a woman is made in the image of God. He is stating that the man or the husband must honor his head as the woman or the wife must honor her head. We don't want to send the wrong message that could be idolatrous or even send the message of something that is adulterous. Glory is the key word here. Image leads to the word glory in verses 7 through 9. It counterbalances the idea of dishonor in verses 4 through 6. We want to honor or glorify. In fact, the word glory is really the word for honor, as we see in Hebrew. God says of his people Israel, I will say to the north, give them up. To the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory whom I have formed, even whom I have made. The people of Israel, the people of God, are made for God's glory. This is a good thing, that we bring God glory in the way that we live and what we do. And so this is a reflection of who we are. It's reflection in being. Our wives are to be treasured and honored as fellow heirs of the grace of life. And as the man, the husband, submits to his head and loves his wife as Christ loves the church, and the wife submits to her head and honors her husband's role and leadership given from God, then God is glorified just as Christ honored his head, his father, though he is equal in nature, submitted to the point of death, even death on the cross. For what? For the glory of his father and the glory or the good of his church. This is the principle going all the way back to the Trinity. Proverbs 11:16 says, "A gracious wife, Septuagint version, brings glory to her husband. But a woman hating righteousness is a theme of dishonor. The slothful come to want, but the diligent support themselves with wealth." On a Jewish tombstone in Rome, we find Lucia, the blessed glory of Sophronius. The idea was that a wife was the glory of her husband. Uh, he would say, this is my beautiful wife. She is my glory. That's what Paul is saying. 
And there should be no um, misunderstandings about that relationship. God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. The ultimate goal of the worship service is to glorify and honor God. Therefore, verse 10, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. You ready for more simplicity? Because of the angels. Some versions say because of the Dodgers, just so you know. No, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. It's not true. <laughs> what does this mean? She should have this symbol of authority, i.e. the veil, because of the angels. What role do angels have in an ancient or modern worship service? Perhaps more than you might think. And of all the views that you could study on what does this mean because of the angels, here's in Rapid Fire 4. Angels, says one view, are human leaders in the church, i.e. Revelation 2 and 3, where maybe they're the head elder or pastor. That's one view. Tertullian suggests that the phrase, the angels, speaks of fallen angels or the sons of God. In Genesis 6, 1 through 4, who noticed the daughters of humans were attractive. But that's a debatable view. Number three, another view contends that Paul has in mind imitating the angels because the angels do so. According to Isaiah 6.2, the seraphs in attendance to God covered their faces, two with their wings. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and one called out to another in antiphonal praise, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Could that be the reason for the veil? A fourth view, which I think has tremendous merit, is angels are in some way participants in worship and function as guardians of its order. They're concerned about the glory and honor that goes and belongs to God. Here's an example. In Luke 15, 10, as Jesus is giving some parables about God's heart for the lost, he says... In the same way, Luke 15, 10, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Newsboys some years ago sang the song, Entertaining Angels. People wondered, what's the song about? The song is about that angels rejoice in heaven over one sinner who repents. Now, sinners can repent anywhere, in a home, in a car, in, in a field, in a, in a bunker, <laughs> whether it's war or golf. But, but I digress. But often, where did people repent? In a church service. An invitation is given. Maybe it's the day of Pentecost when Peter's preaching. Maybe it's an early church service where unbelievers are invited by friends. And one sinner repents and says, yes, I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. The angels can only rejoice if they know what's going on. Amen? And therefore, they have some sort of participation in the worship. In fact, they are ministering spirits come to minister to those who will inhabit or inherit salvation. Ephesians 3, 10 and 11 says his intent through the church was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, Ephesians 3, 10, should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. 
Angels long to look into these things, that is, salvation, because they don't know everything. They're still learning. And so when they watch the church, they see the grace of God on display as they see how God has saved us through the redemption of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they wonder, and they stoop down to look. And when they do, They see the glory of God in the grace of God in the church of God as the people of God are adorned or clothed by the doctrine of God. But imagine if the angels are truly participants in worship services and they see things out of order, things connected to paganism, things that may be dishonoring or immodest. Maybe that's what Paul is saying. We should take into consideration another level. It's not just about us. It's about God and even about his holy angels. Does that change you a little bit when you walk into a worship service on a Sunday morning? And you say, wait a minute, maybe I, I need to give a second thought to how I come in here. I'm not talking about baseball caps. I'm not talking about modern veils for women. Those are the cult, that's the cultural distance. The primary idea is, our honor and fidelity to the gospel of Jesus Christ, no mixed messages about paganism, and honor to the marriage if you are married. Do you see? This is what Paul is getting at. It takes a little bit of work to get at it, but I think this is what's going on. An angel even killed Herod for not giving glory to God and taking glory for himself. See, the issue of glory is before us. Who gets the glory? Verse 11. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. You see, we got to be careful here that we don't jump to conclusions and think that, you know, somehow we can look down on others. We're all interdependent. A woman needs a man, although in our culture, some women are saying they don't, right? I don't need a man. And with technology... They're trying to perhaps make that case, etc. And a man could say, I don't need a woman. There are some bitter men out there who, have, who are hurt and wounded, and I don't need that anymore. But we are interde- interdependent. I mean, just think about it. The reason that we're all here is because women and men came together. Right? We need each other. We are made in the image of God to send a message to the world from our marriages that God is alive and well and that the gospel is true. Our marriages send a message, imperfect as they are. For as the woman originates from the man, Eve was taken from Adam, 12, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. We could say, I am woman, hear me roar. I am man, hear me beat my chest. But in the end, we need each other. And that is the message. We're supposed to love each other. It's not about our independence. It's about our interdependence. We are one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The man can't say to the woman, I don't need you, nor can the woman say to the man, I don't need you. In fact, I would argue, I need to say to my wife, oh, how I need you. 
And I believe for 2,000 years, and I think you all would say the amen to this, that women have been the backbone of the church. In fact, more times than not, I see women coming here dragging five or six kids, three or four maybe, (laughs) into the church, and the man's nowhere to be found. What's going on? If this is God's order, what is wrong with that picture? Oh, I'd say a whole lot. You see, none of us would exist without God. Judge for yourself, says Paul. Is it proper or appropriate for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10, write it down for your notes, says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or go- and gold or pearls or costly garments. I think, again, this is a cultural thing, but the principle stands. But rather, 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10, by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. In light of everything that Paul just said, I think you can say why he says, verse 13, okay, you're reasonable people, think it out. Think about the big picture issue. Does not even nature, here's an important word that you need to know in Greek, it's phusis, P-H-U-S-I-S for nature. Does not even nature, phusis, itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? Now, I want to make sure that this is clear as we wind down. The issue here is an illustration, not a condemnation on long hair. Did some... People who serve God have long hair back in the day. Can you name one? You guys think Jesus did because you've seen the paintings. Nowhere do we have a record that he had long hair. But who do we know had long hair? Samson. And Samson was under what vow? The Nazarite vow. You can study. I don't have time this morning. Study number six. In the Nazarite vow, you, one of the things you could not do is do what? couldn't cut your hair because your hair was a symbol of honoring God and so he was not to touch his hair and interestingly enough when you study number six if uh, there's contact with a dead body so let's say that uh, you've taken the Nazarite vow by the way the Nazarite vow is a voluntary vow for a season although there are a few lifelong Nazarites voluntary for both men and women The Nazarite vow is voluntary for both male and female. It's basically a season of extra dedication and consecration to the Lord. So let's say that someone, you had contact with a dead body. There was a provision for you to start again and be back right in your vow to God. But what did you have to do? You guys remember this? You had to shave your head. And you offered your hair and you started over with a vow. Now, I can't tell you I understand everything that that means. But the long hair is not the issue. The issue is the message that's being sent. Here's the uh, NIV of 14. Does not even the nature of things, as the NIV has it, the norm, this is why the Greek word's important. I don't think he's talking about nature as in you look around at nature but the nature of things or what you see as cultural norms. This is how I'm going to argue 14. Doesn't the nature of things, as you look around, uh, look at Roman statues of the time. Men typically have what? Short hair, women long hair. It's the cultural norm. 
Doesn't that teach you as you look around that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? Paul refers to nature and hairstyles by analogy or illustration only. It's his final illustration as he deals with first century culture, the normal order of things, short hair for guys, long hair for gals. Garland says men uh, should be uncovered, women should be covered. The idea that Paul is dealing with hair length should be rejected, close quote. But if a woman has long hair, as is typical in that culture, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering or a natural covering. And finally, and some of you are ready for finally, but, but if one is inclined to be what? Contentious. We have no other practice, practice nor have the churches of God. Paul is saying this is what is done in every church. So if you are prone to be contentious, this is it. This is what they're doing in every city where a church has been planted. We have no other practice. This is what should be going on. Think of the principle and the spirit of the text. Don't confuse your worship with paganism. Don't be immodest. Don't dishonor your head. That's the issue. Why would anybody be contentious about such things as that? Because some people are just contentious. And we have scriptures about contentious, right? You guys know what they are? Let's end on a positive note, shall we? I'm just kidding. It is better to live in the corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. <laughs> Proverbs 21.9. Sorry, but here it is. It is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. Proverbs 21.19. Proverbs 26.21, though, deals with a man. And it says, like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. Male and female can be contentious. Why are we contentious? Because there's something that we don't like, we don't agree with. It ruffles our feathers. And so we say, I don't like that. But the question is, is that what God has instructed us to do and be? See, the Bible stands in judgment of me, not I of it. Amen? I'm to conform my life to God's word and God's standards, even if I don't completely get it. Because if God's honor is at stake and the angels are involved in this, and this is something much more deep and majestic and incredible than I give it credit for, then I need to change my thinking. God doesn't need to change his. I need to change mine. Personal deference and self-giving, says one writer, are part of the fingerprint of the one who made us. Ultimately, Christ, though he is the head, laid down his life bowed down his head for us in death, for his bride, the church. All roles in Christian worship and marriage are informed by Christ's relationship with the church and what he did for us. And so Um says, there is nothing regressive, dictatorial, or heavy-handed about Christ's relationship with his church. He loves us to the point of death. And so if any of us would take this to a place where it doesn't belong and think that this is about male chauvinism or this is about, you know, control or etc., you have lost the spirit of the text because the spirit of the text is love and honor and glory. 
And so in summing up his argument, we note that Paul has established that women are to be submissive to men because of the relationship uh, in the Godhead, verse 3. The divine design of male and female, we see in verse 7. Order of creation in verse 8. The role of the woman in verse 9. The man is to honor his head, as we see. The interest of the angels in verse 10. And we can even see things through culture or the nature of things in verses 13 through 15. This is why God declares to us that we represent him and we're to be found faithful. We are his church, his bride. And when we gather and people come into our midst, what our deep desire, my prayer every Sunday for this place is, Lord, let your glory be on display. Minimally, let a person who doesn't know you walk in here and say, surely the glory of God, God's glory is in that place and in those people. Father, we humbly come before you. We need understanding and how to apply these things, and I believe we need wisdom and grace to make the application of these principles. Lord, we want to honor you in everything we do and say, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we want to do it all to the glory of God. And Father, I pray that you would be merciful to us as we figure out things along this journey of walking with you, as we understand more about your glory and your holiness and why you've laid things out the way you have. And I believe that as we do, as we get more in touch with your will and your ways, the glory will bounce back to us. The beauty of walking with our God, our creator, our sustainer, the head of the church, the one who's loved us to the uttermost. If you haven't met him yet, or maybe your life's been chaotic, maybe you don't even know who you are or why you're here, it's time for you to come to Jesus and know why you were made, walk in his plan. The first step is to say something like this. And if it's you, my prayer is that you would pray it. Lord Jesus, would you save me? Would you come into my life and be my Lord and be my Savior? Be my God and my King. I turn away from doing things my own way. I'm sorry for my sin. And I turn to you. I want to do life your way. You're the author of life. You made me, you designed me, and I want to walk out what you've called me to be. Father, for those who are praying, maybe those who may be rededicating their lives, their marriage, their singleness, whatever it may be, just their very walk with you to go deeper, to learn more about honor and glory, I pray that you would bless them, shower this beautiful congregation with your grace, with your love, with your truth. Hold them up. Let your beautiful face shine on them always. In Jesus' name I pray. All God's people said.